Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away, just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Our guest today is Associate Professor of Biology, Nadia Ayub. Nadia joined WNL in 2009 after getting her doctorate in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Tennessee and serving as a postdoctoral researcher and NIH fellow at the University of California, Riverside. Her research combines tools from molecular biology, phylogenetics, and natural history to investigate questions as far-flung as symbiotic bacterial transfer and adaptive protein evolution. Her lab is full of venomous spiders, which she assures us are no threat to her students and the occasional nervous visitor. She is currently working on spider silks, especially the sticky silks spiders use to catch their prey. Nadia, we are so happy you could join us today. Happy to be here. I have had so much fun researching for this podcast. Let's begin by talking about the term spider silk. In in broad terms, would you tell us what spider silk is? Well, silk is a biological material. Usually it's fibrous. Um, we, always, we actually typically think of it being fibrous, and it's made out of proteins. Um, that's kind of silk broad. <laughs> well, I think everyone's familiar with silk clothing. Is there is there any relation to the silk used for clothing and spider silk, or is it just the name or the same term used for two different things? Yeah, they are actually similar biological materials. They did evolve independently, though. So the silk that we use to make clothing is made by silk moth caterpillars. So it's also a biological material. And uh, caterpillars uh, spin silk out of their salivary glands, actually, and, and make it into the cocoon that they wrap themselves in before they become butterflies or moths, actually, in this case. Um, so, so spiders make silks that are similar in terms of being made out of proteins. And the proteins of silk moth caterpillars and of spiders do have some similar characteristics. They're very, very long proteins. They have similar amino acids. Um, but we think that they evolved completely independently. Could you go into a little more detail um, and compare spider silks to the silks made by moths? So, so moths actually only make really one kind of silk, that one that they use to wrap themselves up to make the cocoon. And it's, it's a relatively weak fiber compared to some of the kinds of silks that spiders make. And so something that's really special about spiders is they actually make a lot of different kinds of silk. And each of those different kinds of silk is made of different proteins. So um, it's only really one kind of spider silk that has similar protein uh, attributes to silk moth caterpillars. Um, and so so they, they can be quite different. And I think we're going to talk about this later, but one thing that's kind of exciting is getting silk moths to make spider silk because 
then it makes that silk clothing much, much stronger than what a silk moth caterpillar would normally make. Stronger because you're combining the two silks? Yeah. So, so sometimes these caterpillars can express their own silk and then simultaneously they're making the spider silk gene. So we have to use genetic engineering and get the spider to put the, or we put the spider gene into the silk moth. And then, so it's essentially making the silk of a, the silk protein of the spider rather than its own. And silk fibers made by spiders are much, much stronger than the silk fibers made by silk moth caterpillars. Spider silk as such a strong natural material, are there any practical or everyday applications? Yeah, so so we've actually, there's this one, this beautiful, beautiful shawl that was made, and it was really more of, I don't know how practical it is, because it actually required thousands of egg cases made by a garden spider to to spin this shawl but it's just like shiny gold like it could have been spun from gold it's gorgeous um but practically uh people are really interested in using spider silks to make um, lightweight body armor some athletic clothing although i think that's probably a like a more expensive use than you would really need given that we do have really good athletic clothing already um but like tendons ligaments um spider silk is a really nice scaffold for um uh, growing cells on so if you want to make a, a heart or you know some other organ just from cells rather than having to get a donor um, you can actually get those cells to grow on a silk scaffold. So there's a lot of interest in, in that kind of use for spider silk. Wow. So medical applications. A lot of medical applications. And then um, the Department of Defense actually funded my postdoc advisor for years and years because of all the potential applications in the military. Like I said, lightweight body armor, very lightweight ropes and cables, um, those kind of things. So do spiders use silk for other purposes beyond web building? So so spiders definitely use silk for a lot of purposes. Their web, in fact, actually includes multiple kinds of silk. Not So there's the really, really strong one. And that's probably what you think of when you see a spider hanging. It's called the drag line. And in an orb web, it would make the radial lines of the web and... Um, and it, it's giving the strength to that web. Or if you've ever seen like a spider web in the corner of your house, one of those little house spiders is make a cobweb. That's all this really strong dragline silk. But that web has other kinds of silk too. So, so one is that silk that's going to catch prey and it's super stretchy rather than being really strong. So it's like a net that if an insect flies into it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to stretch rather than being very strong and, and the insect bouncing off of that, that super strong silk. And then that, that capture spiral, that stretchy, it's also coated in silk glue, um, which is a liquid silk, which I can talk more about later maybe since that's like my primary interest right now. So, so at least four kinds of silk that are even just in the web itself for catching prey. But in addition, spiders do use silk to wrap their egg cases and some spiders actually use two kinds of silk to wrap their eggs. They, they put like a, a light flocculent silk immediately around the eggs. And then they put this thicker, uh, tougher silk around the outside of the egg case. 
And we think that's, you know, to protect the egg case if it falls or from uh, wasps like to lay their eggs in spider egg cases or, you know, lots of things would like to eat spider eggs. They're yummy and soft and delicious <laughs> okay. and full of nutrition. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I'd use the term yummy, but you're but the researcher. Or a fly or a wasp, you think they're really delicious. So, so egg cases, um, what else? Uh, oh, kind of a really fun one is males use, they make what's called a sperm web. So they actually spin this little web and then they put their sperm into the web and then they have to suck up the sperm with these little front legs called pedipalps so that they can then inseminate the female because they don't have the same kind of structures we have where you can do direct transfer of sperm. Um, they actually have to make this little sperm web first. And there's more. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like there are many, many uses. So I, I want to back up a little bit and uh, talk about how uh, spiders use their silk to spin webs. Do, do all spiders spin webs? No, definitely not. Definitely not all spiders spin webs. So right now I'm working on a group of spiders. Uh, it's a very large group of spiders, includes about a quarter of all species. And we think that ancestrally they all built webs, but actually some of those spiders have lost web building or have really reduced it um, where they might just have a few lines and, and not really use that silk to capture prey. Also, there's this huge group of spiders. It's probably the most diverse group of spiders that has almost completely, most of the spiders in this group have abandoned web building. Again, we think ancestrally they probably built webs um, because there's little pockets of groups in there that do build webs. But let's think about jumping spiders. They don't build a capture web. They sit and wait, jump on their prey. Um, or wolf spiders don't build um, cat webs. But there's thousands of species of jumping spiders, thousands of species of wolf spiders. Well, like most people, I've walked through my share of spider webs, and some webs seem so large or one-dimensional and pristine, while others seem very multi-layered and thick and, and even dirty. And I'm actually looking at one right now that's at the base of my window. Can you tell by looking at the web what kind of spider might live there? Um, so you could get it down to... A, like a broad category of spiders. So we actually, we, we talk about orb web weaving spiders, or we talk about cobweb weaving spiders, or funnel web weaving spiders, but those those are really broad categories. So uh, you're pro, I don't know, do you have an orb web in your window, which is like the, <laughs> like the wagon wheel shaped? No, it's, it's, it's multi-layered and, and dirty and it's almost, it's not transparent. So it's you, like, so you probably have a cobweb maybe. Okay. It look, I mean, I've always called it a cobweb, but I wasn't sure <laughs> if it really is a cobweb. <laughs> yeah. So you probably have a cobweb. So in Virginia, if it's a cobweb, it could be a house spider. That would be a really likely choice. Um, it could be a false black widow. It's Ooh. possible. Um, those are usually smaller spiders. So if you can't see the spider, it might it might be a false black widow. I have looked for the spider and I cannot find it. Yeah. So, so black widows are another cobweb weaving species we have in Virginia. 
Um, but they tend to make bigger webs, and I have not seen them building on outside of windows or okay. outside of houses. It's kind of on the inside, inside, outside of the window. Yeah, so it could be it's probably okay. either a house spider or a false black widow. All right. So, have, so yeah, you can. But then <laughs> if I were to go somewhere else, there could be just like that. There are thousands of species of cobweb weavers. So I wouldn't necessarily be able to say, yeah, it's probably a house okay. spider all right, so so on a on a different note, I have a, a very large artistic web on our side porch. It's it's gorgeous, um, but unfortunately, it's right in line of our doorway, and it gets knocked down every day. Why do spiders rebuild webs in the same place over and over again, even if something like you know a person knocks down the web every time? Yeah. So so think about from the perspective of the spider and when it's built that that web and what it's using it for, right? So probably that's an orb web would be my guess. And she has probably built that web in the night and she has probably already caught all the prey that she's going to catch on that web overnight. And for a lot of orb weavers, you know, once the sun comes up, they crawl into a corner and hide and they don't come out until it gets dark again. And then they'll eat their web and build a new one. So if you knock it down, that's a little, you know, it's a little bit of a loss for her. But if it's a good spot to catch prey, then she's going to keep building her web there. Logical spider thought. <laughs> they do abandon eventually, like <laughs> jump shit. They're like, I haven't gotten anything here. I gotta, I gotta go somewhere else. <laughs> I keep hoping the spider would abandon, but but she's not. Um, so when I was reading about spiders for the podcast, I was struck by the incredible biological and behavioral diversity among them. You know, from huge tarantulas throwing barbed hairs to tiny jumping spiders, which you had mentioned earlier. And I, I didn't realize there were so many different kinds of spiders and that they behaved so differently from each other. When you consider these biological or behavioral differences, what stands out to you the most? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's so many. There's so many. It's hard to like choose just one. Um, so there's some behaviors that I just think are fun and funny. Like there's these jumping spiders that are very, very colorful. The males are very colorful and they do these dances. They lift up their legs and they display their beautiful colors and they drum and that's to attract the female over to mate. Um, and, and I mean, they can spend hours just dancing for the female to try to get her to come join him. I've heard that, I've heard that if, if females don't, like their dance, they may eat them. They Is might. that true? Yeah, 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 they might, they might, they might. <laughs> I also read somewhere that the male dance resembles the the village people YMCA dance. Oh, yes, yeah, some of them do. They're like, YMCA. <laughs> So, so you've talked about you've talked about weavers. You've talked about jumpers, and so why are some sp spiders web weavers and other hunters? So, you know, in other words, why do some spiders cast nets while others chase down their prey? It's almost like you could compare them to a, a fisherman versus a hunter. Yeah. So, so you can also think about it like what we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket necessarily. <laughs> But that's, you know, that's, that's for us within a single species where, you know, like if you have some, some people who catch fish 
and other people who hunt deer, then that's more resources for everybody, right? But but for spiders, they don't have that luxury of like, I'm going to make a choice about being a hunter or, or a web builder. It's the luck of the draw of evolutionary history, essentially. Um, we think that silk building was something that allowed spiders, you know, big evolutionary success, that spiders are much more diverse than their closest arachnid relatives. And silk and venom probably contributed to them being able to just diversify and spread across the globe. But then you have to think about, even though the silk web seems amazing for catching prey and really did does seem to help them, um, it's also metabolically expensive to make a web. So the silk is made of protein. And so they, they have to put, they have to get a lot of resources to be able to make that web. And for most spiders, it pays off. Like the, the amount of prey they're going to catch is going to pay off that, that what they're putting into building their silk. But now imagine luck of the draw. You're a spider that stops, you know, builds less of a web, but now has some new behavior like jumping or whatever, um, that allows them to catch their prey without the metabolic expense of building a web. That could be advantageous for that individual spider. Um, and it could leave a lot of offspring, right? And then spreads from there. And so we do think that in this large group of, of wandering spiders, like jumping spiders and wolf spiders, that not having to make a silk web actually was a big advantage for them. And they were able then to diversify into these thousands of species that we see now. That's kind of luck of the draw. What was your evolutionary history? <laughs> Are there any spiders that do both? Well, a lot of male spiders um, will build webs when they're young. And then when they mature, they'll abandon their web and, and go off and search for females. But in those species, they tend to not eat very much. They're actually very bad at catching prey without a web. Um, sometimes you'll see a male eat on a female's web if he's abandoned web building and gone in search of females. Um, but but I don't know of any species that <laughs> regularly do both. It's like a, the male being a spider squatter or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Since, since we're discussing spider behavior, I... I have to bring this up. I read that depending on the species, the female spider will eat the male spider before, during, or after copulation. Is that how the black widow spider got her name? That is definitely how the black widow spider oh. got her name. <laughs> but even in black widows, there's actually, oh gosh, I don't want to know to tell you exact number of species of black widows, but I think it's 12 at least. And they don't all eat the male the, when they mate. Um, you're right. Like some of them, if they're hungry and they've already mated, they're like, get out of my web. I'm just going to eat you. And they, <laughs> they don't do anything. Some male black widows actually have this whole ritual where they, they, they climb on the female and they flip their abdomen over so that their abdomen's in the, the female's mouth. And so she's, he's inseminating her while she eats his abdomen. Great strategy, huh? <laughs> Sounds like a Stephen King novel or something. There's there's a there's a good good novel in there somewhere. You also research spiders' circadian rhythms. 
And as I remember in the story of Charlotte's Web, Charlotte hardly ever slept. So what is the, what is a day in the life of a spider like? I love Charlotte's Web. And there's so many, there's so many things that are like, sort of realistic and about spiders in that book. And then there's the things that are like not realistic at all, right? <laughs> like like the fact that she talks or there's a talking pig. <laughs> or that she can write words. But you know, like like spiders or weaving spiders do write in their webs. They do they even have a special kind of silk that they use to write in their webs. And there's all this controversy about like what what is it that you're they're doing with this that zigzag that's in their web. Um, but spiders spend most of their time not doing anything at all, right? just like sitting there waiting. So that's not technically sleep the way we think of sleep, but they're not really doing anything. They're resting. Um, but what's interesting is that they do have cyclic behaviors, um, daily behaviors that they do pretty much at the same time every day. And they'll do them whether there's light cues or not. You can put them in constant darkness and they'll still do these behaviors at pretty much the same time every day. So depending on the species, I, like I was saying about your spider that's on your porch, she probably comes out a little bit after dark, builds her web, she sits on it, she waits for prey to fly into her web, and she will only move from the center of that web if an insect flies into it, right? And then she'll go, you know, morning comes or even before morning, she'll go and get into her retreat and, and wait for the night to come. That same, that same species, depending on which species it is, turn off the lights, she'll still do that. But it might not be every 24 hours. And this is kind of the really cool thing about spiders. You know, if you are a human and you are put in constant dim light or constant, Con not quite constant darkness. We haven't ever done that to anybody, but constant <laughs> dim light. <laughs> They'll go to sleep about every 24 hours, you know, like 10 o'clock at night, whatever it is. If that's when you went to sleep day one, you're going to do it day two, day three, day four. You're going to wake up about eight hours later, whatever your sleep pattern is, right? You, with a little bit of variation. So a human might go to sleep a couple minutes earlier or a couple minutes later, but never more than like 30 minutes different from 24 hours. You know, we're really close to what the 24 hour day is. Um, but a spider, depending on the species, if you put it in constant dark, it could do that behavior every 17 hours, which is very, very short. We, we don't, see that in a lot of species. No mammal would do that ever. Um, so it's it was kind of like this bizarre finding that they would do this, this same behavior in the constant dark every 17 hours. That's not what we expected. And then another species of spider could do their web building every 29 hours. So, so spiders have these really interesting circadian behaviors that when there's light cues, they're tied to that light cue. But you take away that light and their their cyclic behaviors may not be like we always think of as circadian. And I have to put in a plug here now for my colleague, Natalia Toprikova, <laughs> who if you are interested in circadian rhythms and behavior, you need to talk to her because she is definitely the one who... Um, actually models the physiology and the behaviors and 
the whole reason I even got into circadian behaviors was that we were mentoring a student, um, a neuroscience student who was her advisee, but he'd been working in my lab and he was like, I want to do a neuroscience honors thesis, um, but I want to keep working on spiders. And so Natalia was like, well, what do we know about circadian <laughs> behavior in spiders? <laughs> and it turned out that I, I had a colleague who is the person working on circadian behavior in spiders. And it became this big collaboration. And I'm really kind of like a side person on it. I just, I love it. It's fascinating. Um, it's not my main area of research. Well, I love how it began with a student and their interests and that you as professors tailored uh, the course of study to that. That's, um, I think that's unique and, and, and one of the wonderful things about uh, WNL. And, and definitely one of the reasons I love this job. Just yeah. Many people, or, or maybe even most people, have a fear of spiders. Why, why do you think people are so afraid? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> and I'm going to tell my kids that they should do research on that. <laughs> but, but I do, I have ideas. <laughs> well, so, do you think it's evolutionary, or do you think that we all just grew up listening to scary spider stories? I, I, think, it, I think both probably contribute, honestly. So um, this research hasn't been done with spiders, but with snakes, uh, primates in general are scared of snakes. Like there seems to be an innate fear. Chimpanzees and gorillas will jump or try to avoid snakes. And, you know, if we think about snakes, some of them are quite dangerous, quite venomous and really could be very dangerous to us. Um, so having an innate avoidance behavior might evolve, right? And it seems to have in primates. Spiders, they're not as dangerous as snakes, honestly. <laughs> um, but there are a few species that are quite venomous and, and could cause some damage. So it's possible that we have this innate evolved response to be a little bit scared of spiders. Honestly, though, I think that a lot of it is cultural for us where we've been told spiders are scary. Spiders are gross. Oh, my God. Stay away from spiders. You see your mom jump and, <laughs> and sweep the spider away. And, and so that's why they're terrified of spiders. Well, someone once told me that wolf spiders, like the really big ones, can live to be several years old. What is it about wolf spiders that enable them to have such a relatively long lifespan? So wolf spiders, tarantulas can also live, taran some tarantulas could live 10 years in the wild. Oh, even. Wow. So we're not entirely sure, like, why is it that some species can live a long time and others can't? It, it's, you know, one of those things we ask about ourselves, too. Like, why do humans live to their, can live to their 90s? versus chimpanzees very rarely live past 40. You know, we have very similar biology in, a, in many ways, but, but we have a much, much longer lifespan. So it, it, there probably is some trade-off, you know, like you get older, you can have more kids, um, maybe you raise them. Well, spiders do not really parental care, but they, they, you know, carry their egg sac around on their abdomens. The babies live on their heads. So maybe having that longer life, you know, allows for some of that parental care to happen. Um, and that might offset with the cost of aging to some extent. 
Um, they may also be better at getting under under leaves, finding places to overwinter. Um, it's hard to know. I mean, black widows we think of as being annual, like they don't live more than a year in the wild. But in my lab, I've had black widows that have lived three, four years, no problem. So it's, it's not necessarily something about their biology that's keeping them from, that's making them die. Whereas it could just be, they, they don't have the conditions that allow them to live or they're not going to make it like prey, you know, they're going to get eaten by a bird or whatever. <laughs> you have very safe and comfy spider homes. In your <laughs> oh, lab. it's so, so comfy. <laughs> so comfy. So Nadia, I've been working on your podcast for a few weeks and I have to say that now when I come across a spider, I slow down and watch it for a while. I can see why you find them so fascinating. Um, I'd like to change the topic here slightly and, and move more toward your research. What inspired you to begin studying spiders? <laughs> I wish I could say that I was like the kid who loved spiders and had to have the spider in the house and all of that. <laughs> I, I actually like my only claim to working with arthropods at all was that when I was a kid, my brother would be like, oh my God, there's a grasshopper, come kill it, Nadia, come get it out of the house. So I was the resident, like not afraid of arthropods person. And it was usually grasshoppers. He was terrified of grasshoppers. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really think about it. I went to college thinking, oh, maybe I'll study autism. Maybe I'll be a doctor. I mean, I love, I, I didn't know if I was any good at science, but I love genetics. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting. I had terrible science education up to that point. And my advisor was like, oh, why don't you try the pre-med track if you're interested in autism? And so I started taking, I took biology and chemistry and I, I really liked my science classes. I just really liked them. And I ended up in an ecology class and I just, I just love this class. It was, the professor was really funny and we had these labs where I I've never been out walking in the woods and like somebody actually tell me like, this is what this tree is and this is what this insect is. And, and it would just like opened up this huge world for me of, whoa, science is cool. And the natural world is really cool. And I had no clue for all these years, what, what was out here. And um, that professor asked me to come work in his lab and he studied parasitic wasps. I had dreams about wasps coming out of my arms for, for years. <laughs> but the cool thing about working in his lab was I realized that, you know, their, their arthropods are so diverse and they're all over the globe and they've evolved so many kinds of adaptations and, and you are allowed to do pretty much anything you want to with them, you know? So like as a scientist who wants to do experimentation, Arthropods are definitely the group to work in. So when I was looking for graduate programs, I knew I wanted to work in a lab that used arthropods as a system. And I was just looking for labs that um, studied local adaptation. And I, I really wanted to get into the genetics of what, what makes something work, right? And I applied to a number of different labs and I, I ended up just really liking this lab that worked on spiders. And she had these really cool system where they had these local adaptations uh, where the spiders that lived next to creeks were, you know, they were just inundated with prey and they were very 
they were very shy and they would barely ever come out of their web. And then same species a few miles away would be in the desert and was very dry. They didn't get a lot of prey and they were so aggressive. Like you threw anything on the web, they would just run out and come get it. And it seemed to be genetically uh, driven difference. And so I was really intrigued by the system and wanted to understand like what could be the genetics of these different behaviors. I ended up not figuring it out, <laughs> but I did a lot of other cool things with spiders. And I always say like, if I had ended up in the cricket lab, which was my second choice that like, I would just be so into crickets now and, and singing the praises of cricket songs. And, you know. um, but I got into a spider lab and spiders, like once you just start learning about something, it, it for me at least, I just wanted to learn more. Like I always am feeling like the more I learn, the less I know, which is like so cliche, but it's really true. Like I just more questions and more excitement and more curiosity about what could these spiders be doing and how is it that they are so successful and there's so many different species and they can make so many kinds of silk. And um, yeah, so that's that's how I got into spiders. So how do you conduct your research then? Um, how do you how do you collect the silks of spiders? I collect the silk from webs. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of fun. <laughs> you can tape a spider down um, with its abdomen up, and it's always trailing a little bit of that dragline silk. That's why it's called the dragline because they're always trailing a little bit of it. And so that that means that you you can take that silk that's coming out already and start to pull it and reel it out of the spider, and and so that's that's one way people get silk, actually. Oh, wow. Um, the only kind of silk you can do that way is the drag line, because it's the one that, that they're always trailing. And a lot of people are really interested in that kind of silk because it's the strongest kind of silk. Um, I never had done that. I'd seen my like people in my lab do it. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> and for, I mean, you can get meters of silk this way. Um, but I, I am currently really interested in the sticky silk that they put on their web to catch prey. And that is not something you, they control that. They have pretty good muscular control over using that um, sticky bluey silk. And so I have uh, spiders, I have cobweb weavers in my lab and in these critter keepers in black rectangular boxes. And I can pull the little cardboard box out and the, the, the cobweb weavers put their glue on these bottom lines. And I have these special little collectors that we use to, to get the, the silk out of the bottom of their web. Orbweb weavers, some of them will not build in the lab, but right now I actually have 10. So if anybody wants to come visit and see my spiders. <laughs> we do have parents and family weekend open house. That's right. So, so come come visit. <laughs> yes. You need to make an appointment though. <laughs> How do you collect soap from a black widow without getting bitten? Oh, well, some black widows are very shy. So they would much rather hang out in their little retreat if you're messing around in their web. Um, so we, we do, I have these little cardboard E-shaped collectors that I attach to metal, um, metal clips. And so I'm holding the metal clip or the students holding the metal clip. The thing touching the web is the cardboard. 
And very, very rarely does the spider show any interest in what you're doing. She's scared. She's hiding out in the corner. Um, every once in a while, get this little trimmer or you're like trying to cut the line. I have a little tiny pair of scissors and I'm cutting the line away from the, the main web. And every once in a while, she'll be like, oh, you're an insect. And she'll, <laughs> she'll want to come down. She'll come check it out. Um, usually I'll just blow on the web and she'll just run back. I had one who was really eager this week and I dropped everything and she ran away. <laughs> so have you ever been bitten by a spider? Oh, no, no, no. Uh -huh. I mean, 20 plus years of working with spiders, live spiders, and never, never. I, I mean, I don't touch them with my bare hands, right? You know, I've always got something between me and the spider because like, there's no reason to tempt with fate. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't even know, like none of my colleagues have ever been bitten by a spider. You involve students in a lot of your research. How do you help them learn to love spiders? Well, they don't all learn to love spiders. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that very few of them coming, come in loving spiders. I, I can count two on my hand that came in loving spiders. Um, but most of them do come to appreciate spiders and some to even even love spiders. I have one student who told me he was afraid of spiders before he came to work in my lab. And by the end of the summer, he had purchased himself a tarantula to keep oh. at home. <laughs> and he was sending me updates on her. <laughs> and he doesn't even work in the lab anymore, but I still get pictures of his. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't take it that far, but I have to say that I do have a new appreciation for spiders <laughs> after this so, podcast. So I think, you know, they're their own best, uh, whatever the word is, like <laughs> diplomats. or <laughs> it's, I really do think if you make people aware, if you give them an opportunity to experience something, that most people will appreciate it and want to know more. I really do think, and it's, I mean, our students are so smart and curious. Like once you give them something, a little bit of something to start with, they, they just want to know more. And, and so I feel fortunate that that's the human condition and that we have such great students. <laughs> um, but they do have to have a willingness, you know, and I, I have had some students who really are just so afraid that you know, they said, I love genetics, you know, I, I want to do genetics work with you, but I, I cannot, I cannot work with a live spider. And even for them, you know, they have to come in the lab, they see the spiders in the lab, they, they see that the spiders don't get away. And for a lot of them, they even they will get over a lot of that fear. They may never come to the point where they want to have a spider in their own house to keep as a pet. <laughs> I would have to think that would be the minority. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's always it's wonderful when a student who's told me, like, I'm terrified of spiders, like by the time they're done working with me, they've caught black widows. I mean, and that's happened a couple of times. So, Well, before we wrap up, let's talk a little more about you. What do, how do people react when they find out what you do for a living? Oh, the first thing they always tell me is say, come to my house, come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many spiders. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd have to admit how many cobwebs I have in my house. And I don't think I'm I don't think I'm willing to do that yet. 
So have you heard the fun fact that every human accidentally swallows around eight spiders a year in their sleep? I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to tell us that's a myth. As far as I know, that's a myth. I don't think there's any evidence to support that claim at all. <laughs> I mean, spiders, if you walk outside your house, spiders are everywhere. But that does not mean they're falling into your mouth at night. And, and it would be extremely unlikely. <laughs> a spider in your house is trying to catch insects. It's not trying to go anywhere near you. That is a relief. So in the spirit of Halloween, you're clearly not afraid of spiders. Are there any insects that you are afraid of? Okay, I, okay, I have to admit that caterpillars gross me out. Caterpillars, they're so cute and fluffy. So I did this research project when I was an undergraduate where I had to keep moth caterpillars on this diet and they pooped and they grew <laughs> fungus and they were so gross. They were so gross. Now, a caterpillar in the wild is okay. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to look at a caterpillar quite the same. <laughs> So, uh, I will tell you I'm afraid of snakes. I mean, are you? I can't I cannot seem to get over it. I took herpetology to try to overcome the fear and it oh. did help. Um, and I can now like if I see it, I can look at it. I can even pick it up if I know what species it is. Um, but if I turn a rock over and there's a snake there, I will jump straight in the air and scream and <laughs> Well, from what you said earlier, that sounds like a, a natural be and, 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 and positive behavior. I would, I would like to believe that I'm not just bound by my culture. <laughs> so what do you do for fun when you're not chasing down spiders? Oh, sometimes that's fun. But, <laughs> um, I, you know, I love to read. That's, that's something I've always, always loved. I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I just I love to read. And that's probably what I would do given a day where I didn't have anything I had to do. Um, also, I love hiking, uh, you know, hanging out with my kids and swimming and all kinds of fun things. Well, your husband also works in the biology department at WNL. Do your children share the love of science? Oh, they do. <laughs> they do, but they do not ever want to be a professor. They're like, this is way too much work. <laughs> What's your dinnertime conversation like with them? <laughs> oh, well, my oldest son, he's so funny. So sometimes it really is something about, you know, like science. He'll be like, oh, well, did, did you know this about black holes? And he'll like, I mean, he'll tell me all kinds of details about black holes. Or the younger one is is really interested now in psychology and science. And then he's like, you know, mom, I'd like, you only wear those those glasses so you feel like a scientist. <laughs> Psychoanalyzing the mother. <laughs> so Nadia, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate uh, the enlightening information about spiders and hopefully everybody can have a little bit of a different perspective when they come across a spider again. Thanks for having me.
And I want to thank you, Lifelong Learner, for listening today. You can find out more on today's fascinating topic, as well as a truly great selection of other WNL Afterclass sessions that cover everything from witches to Salvador Dali and the pursuit of happiness. Visit our website, wlu.edu lifelong. Take a look. And until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.